I did want to take, though, just a moment to express a brief word of appreciation. You know, many of us were gathered right here this past Friday night for just a wonderful production of Andrew Peterson's Behold the Lamb. But, you know, that event didn't just magically happen. No, it actually took weeks worth of work by a specific few people that I just want to take a moment and recognize and thank. And that's Stephen Martin, wherever Stephen is, usually over here somewhere, and Joe Footerer and Ryan Berry put literally weeks worth of work to try to make that event happen on Friday night. So just a word of appreciation and thanks to them. If you see them, encourage them, express your own gratitude toward them. And for the dozens and dozens who are helping to park cars, who are manning booths, who are serving as ushers, who were moving equipment, right, all of you made that night happen, and it was, a, it was a blast. It was a good time. And it may be, honestly, the only time you ever see, like, a fog machine and a light show here at UBC. <laughs> and so I loved my two minutes of fame under that fog machine and that light show, and then it went dark and I had to sit down. But at any rate, it was a great time. With that, let's pray. Let's get to God's word. Lord, we do give you praise. We give you praise for uh, the gift of music and for what we were able to hear Friday night, for the, the wonderful songs we've been able to sing this morning that testify to your faithfulness and to your goodness. Lord, our, our own mouths uh, cannot do justice even to the words and to the truths that lie behind them. And we pray now that as we come to your word that you would open our eyes, that we might see wonderful things. In Christ's name, amen. Well, the rapper, singer, songwriter Lizzo is championed by many as a model for body positivity, a model for self-confidence. She's, in fact, built, Lizzo has, her whole brand on a kind of female-empowering, stereotype-breaking, in-your-face, what she calls big-girl sexuality. And she's done that to critical acclaim. And so it came as quite a shock to many, I trust to most, when a few months ago she was hit with multiple lawsuits claiming sexual harassment, claiming degradation in the workplace, in in a work environment that was rife with fat shaming, which is rather tragic and ironic given the fact that her whole tour was explicitly there to celebrate full figured women. But it's not just Lizzo. Recent reports have circled about Jimmy Fallon and all the ways in which there have been just this revolving door of disillusioned workers there who are berated and belittled behind closed doors. And then there's the recent report just what last week in the Wall Street Journal about the kind of toxic workplace environment at the FDIC, an environment that is rife with strip clubs, with obscene photos of sexual harassment and misogyny such that it was driving women to leave the agency in droves. Friends, sadly, many of us know what it's like to live under unhealthy and oppressive forms of authority. You know, maybe you growing up had a Bobby Knight-style coach, right, who was throwing chairs and choking players. Hopefully not you, right? But maybe you had a coach like that. I know I had one. Or maybe you had a a boss that was prone to just unleash expletive-ridden rants. That was my first boss. Or it could even hit closer to home. You know, a husband who literally muscles his way with his wife or a wife who verbally shames her children. 
Sadly, we live under oppressive forms of authority all the time. You can just ask the billion who live under communist rule in China or Putin's Russia or African warlords like Idi Amin. Or you can just ask a social worker. Just ask a counselor. Friends, should we just reject, therefore, all forms of authority? Should we just see them as helplessly abusive and corrupt? And if so, I mean, how exactly are we to think of God's own authority, of his authority over us and all he's made? Well, friends, it's questions like this that bring us back this morning to our study in the book of 2 Samuel. So I invite you to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 23. You can find it if you want to use one of the red Bibles. We provide them in the seatbacks before you. If you don't happen to have a Bible, we'd encourage you to pull that out and follow along. It'll help you. And if you don't own a Bible, let that be our gift to you this morning. Take that Bible with you and reflect on the things we read and think about even this morning further. And again, you can find it on page 275 of those Red Bibles. And if you are just joining us, 2 Samuel has been all about the rise and the fall and the return of Israel's great King David. And here in these last chapters, we're given a kind of retrospective on his life. And in chapter 22 last week, we saw how God had established David's kingdom. And now as we start chapter 23, we we don't look backward anymore, but no, we look forward and we're given a vision of what God's kingdom will look like. It's a beautiful vision of prosperity and opportunity, of life and light, of righteousness and joy. It's a vision that captures the essence of godly authority and the effect of that authority upon others. And if I were to summarize the chapter just in a single sentence, I might do it just like this. Godly authority promotes flourishing and produces followers. Godly authority promotes flourishing and produces followers. And we're just going to take our two points right from that summary statement. First, godly authority promotes flourishing. So godly authority promotes flourishing, first point. Second point, godly authority promotes, or rather produces followers. Godly authority produces followers. All right, so to that first point, godly authority promotes flourishing. It promotes flourishing. Look down to chapter 23, verse 1. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, He dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? But worthless men are like the thorns that are thrown away. For they cannot be taken with the hand, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and with the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. 
All right, so we'll stop there, and we've come, as we see, verse 1, to what? To the last words of David. Now, they aren't literally the very last or syllables David spoke. His, his sort of deathbed words, you can find those in, in 1 Kings. Rather, these are sort of, think of them as last official words, almost like his president has his farewell address. Maybe it's something like that. And we might expect David at this point to highlight, he hasn't really done it yet, to highlight all of his accomplishments and achievements, all of his legislative victories and successes. But he doesn't do that, does he? No, here in these opening verses, David, really God through David, is pointing us higher, pointing us to something greater, something actually outside of David, something beyond himself. He's given, in fact, a vision Right? The word there is oracle, and in the Bible, an oracle is a divine word. So the NIV helpfully translates oracle, the inspired utterance of David. That's what it is. It's an inspired utterance. For notice verse 2, David says, the spirit, not of me, right, but the spirit of the Lord speaks by or speaks through me. Right? His word, referring to God's word, is on my tongue, David says. In other words, we're not given here David's musings, but we're given a divine message. These are, again, God's words through David. And this is what theologians just refer to as inspiration. Not merely that the words are inspiring, right, or that they're moving in some subjective sense, but rather that Scripture is what? It's God-breathed, 2 Timothy 3.16, or in the words of Peter, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit, 2 Peter 1.21. Right? It's as simple as this, what Scripture says, God says. Now that doesn't mean God has obliterated the personality and wills of the biblical writers, nor does it require us to take some dictation view of the Bible where men become mere robots and marionettes, but you know, both King David and take the Apostle Paul, right? They have their own distinct and unique personalities and their own characteristics, the way they write, the way they communicate, their styles. And yet God can sovereignly and providentially work through all of that such that what they write is what he says, right? Their words are his words. In other words, God can sovereignly move in us such that in the biblical authors, they say only what he wants them to say, which just as an aside means if you're one of those Christians who believes in absolute free will, I'm here to tell you I'm sorry, you actually finally have no justification, no foundation for an inspired Bible. Now, if you're wondering why that is, I leave, ponder that over lunch, right? Or if you get really frustrated, contact me later. I think three of you may take me up on it, but at any rate. In the second half of verse 3 and 4, we see God now speaking through David. And we're given really this arresting and evocative image of what godly authority is like. We read, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. Now, I remember as a kid camping high up in the Colorado mountains outside of Durango. We were a full sort of two-day long ride up into the mountains on horseback. 
And it was one of those mornings I came out of the tent and it was cold, it was damp, it was dark. I found myself wishing as I did about every morning on that trip that I had a heater somewhere, there was a warm bed. And then the the sun crested this ridge across the valley and its warm rays penetrated my cool skin. And the dark valley began to lighten into this lush green and the grass literally glistened and sparkled as, it, as the light was refracted, refracted off the dew. And in, and in moments, just moments, that whole valley was now dancing with light and dancing with life. It held promise. It held opportunity, right? Endless opportunity, limitless possibility. It was really a majestic scene captured just there in that moment. And that's something of the image in these verses here. This image of abundant flourishing. You know, there are echoes really here of of Genesis chapter 1. You know, godly authority governs as the sun governs the day, right? Dispelling darkness, showering creation with light. And so vegetation sprouts and life blossoms. And in the same way, David is saying, Godly authority brings light and life to everything and to everyone around them. And note the echoes of Genesis 3, where worthless, sinful men are likened to what? They're likened to thorns and thistles, verse 6. We're calling the curse upon Adam. And now we read these verses, and many of us immediately, what do we do? We jump to human authority. We jump to those authorities over us. Maybe they're political authorities, or maybe they're authorities in the the workplace or in the academy. But in context, the one who rules here, in context, is God's king. The one being spoken of is specifically God's anointed. And some of this is reflected in David's reign, But we have to recognize in 2 Samuel, it's only a poor shadow, right? Sadly, we've witnessed the breakdown of this kind of just and righteous authority. Remember the way he abused it with Bathsheba and Uriah, the way David turned a blind eye to Amnon's sin with Tamar and failed to execute justice for his girl, the way that he overlooked Absalom's treachery and alienated his troops. David has hardly been a complete picture of this kind of blessed authority in the latter half of his reign. Now, these verses are finally speaking about someone greater that would come from David's line. Really, 2 Samuel 23, 1-7 is in fact just a full-length portrait of Jesus. It's exactly what we come to celebrate at Christmas time, isn't it? We know the prophecy of Isaiah, the people walking in what? Walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shone, Isaiah 9-2. For Jesus is the one who alone has ruled righteously and who has ruled in the fear of God. He is the one who causes the land to flourish. Causes the land to flourish like a garden. He is what? John 11, the resurrection and the life. He's also what? John 8, he is the light of the world. The one who brings light and life to his new creation. He's the one who brings light to blind eyes. He is the one who brings life to lifeless bodies like Lazarus. 
Jesus actually applies all of this imagery in verses 1 to 7. He himself applies it to himself in the Gospels, to his own ministry. He says this is, in fact, a picture of his own reign. So if you have come this morning and you're one who's suffered under oppressive forms of authority, I am so sorry, truly, deeply sorry for how you have suffered. Sorry that those in authority over you, they could be parents, they could be teachers, they could be bosses or spouses, ways in which they've abused that authority. They've leveraged it, sadly, as so many of us do, for what? For selfish ends, right? It's leveraged for our own gain or it was leveraged for their gain and not for your good, as authority is meant to be exercised. But I just want you to see that is not how Christ exercises authority, Right? Look at his life as we look at the Gospels. He's the very son of God. He's the one who reigns at the right hand of God. He has absolute power. And not once has Jesus ever wielded that power selfishly. Never once has he wielded it unjustly. No, we read earlier in the service from Matthew 20 how James and John, right, they wanted the authority to sit at Jesus' right and left. And why did they want that? Because when you get authority, you get what you want. And they wanted what they wanted. And everyone was upset about it. But what did Jesus have to say? He said, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them and their great ones exercise authority, exercise it as tyrants, the CSB says, but not so among you. Whoever would be great among you must become like a servant. For Jesus goes on to say, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Jesus takes the world's notions of of hierarchy and power, and he just turns them all on their head. Not because there's no longer any legitimate place for authority and responsibility. No, those, those things are good and they still exist. They're right. No, the revolutionary idea of Jesus here and of what we're seeing already here in, in 2 Samuel 23 is that leaders, those who have power, those who rule, are to exercise it not for the benefit and for the aggrandizement of themselves, right? Not 1 Samuel 8. What does is, what is Samuel warn the people, right? The king, well, what? He'll take, he'll take, he'll take, he'll take. That's the warning. That's not how authority should be exercised. Rather, it is for the benefit of those under authority. Biblical authority, Jesus' authority, is authority exercised in sacrificial and selfless care for others. That's the great authority that Jesus holds out to us. And his kingdom reign, this kind of reign is attractive. Why? Because this king is attractive. Anyone who rules like this, what a wonderful king. What a blessed king. What a great king to serve. A great king to be under. And I just want to say, if you've come this morning and you wouldn't identify as a Christian, this one can be your king. And he's a glorious king. You'll never need to worry that he'll use his authority for selfish ends. He'll never use it against you. Always and only use it for you. And his good authority can transform your life. It brings light out of darkness, life out of death. And the proof of that is right there on the cross where this king would come and he would lay down his life 
and be crucified. And in grace and love, he would sacrifice his own righteous life and he would give it up for your unrighteous life. He would put sin to death so that one day you yourselves wouldn't have to be put to death. And all this Jesus did not because you or because I or any of us merited it, but simply because he's merciful. As we just read, he came, what? Not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom, as a payment for many. Oh, friend, you can embrace this Jesus, a glorious king, by repenting of your sins, turning to him, trusting wholly upon him. Though it's not always easy, I assure you, you will not regret it. Christian, you too, though. You can come to the same Jesus. You're called to. You're called to rest in him as well, trusting that whatever his good authority has brought your way, whether or not it's through hardships and whether or not it's through trials, right? Those things only come with his permission. And he's using those trials not to terrorize you, but he's, he's in fact using them to transform you to conform you more into his own image and likeness, right? He's separating the, the wheat from the thorny weeds in your own heart and life, and he's preparing you even now for heaven. But notice something else about this king's reign. For as a reign of justice, notice it does mean that one day the worthless and the wicked who mock this king's rule, notice what happens to them. One day they will be reaped with a rod of iron, utterly consumed by fire, verse 7. You remember Jesus' parable about the thorny weeds? We, we, we know the word in most of our English Bibles is weeds, but it's actually a, a real thorny, kind of prickly weed. And what does Jesus do? But he says, he will come one day as the great reaper of souls and he will gather all of those thorny weeds out of his kingdom. And what will he do? He will burn them with unquenchable fire. Matthew 13, 40. Jesus there seems to be referencing this image right here in 1 Samuel 23. And that can be hard to appreciate, right? Because all of us, I know I was raised and trained and taught to be respectful of other people's religious beliefs. Which, which we ought to be, but I was also taught never to talk about the superiority of one set of beliefs over another set of beliefs. But just note that Jesus makes such distinctions. We see it even right here, right? His kingdom is exclusive. It's his kingdom. He is the king. His choices, which means it's only this kingdom for those who have truly submitted to his righteous reign. That is who it is for. And only for. And friends, where do we see Christ's reign today? Where do we see this reign? Well, recognize in the Bible, the first place that we're called to see it, the first place we're told to look for it, you know where it is? It's actually not in your life. It's not in your workplace directly, individually. It's actually right here corporately in the church. That's where we see the reign of Christ most on display. Matthew 16 and Matthew 18, what Christ gave the keys of the kingdom, which is the power to declare the who and the what of the gospel, Christ gave the authority of those keys. Who did he give it to? Not to elders, not to individuals, not to some committee someplace or bishop somewhere, but no, he gave it to the local church. 
And so we exercise that authority together as a church, right? We proclaim Christ's own reign by what? Reading and proclaiming his word together. I'm not just musing about things that might be fun and and about sports and the rest and politics up here. No, I speak only what I think God's word is meant to teach and tell us. We exercise it by recognizing those who confess Christ's kingdom reign and those who what? Confess it and submit to it. How? Publicly by being baptized as we got to celebrate even this morning and will in just a moment. We exercise it together, this reign of Christ and the celebration of the Lord's Supper, which declares Christ's reign and holds out to us the promise of what a new heavens and a new earth. And we'll celebrate that, Lord willing, next week. We celebrate it and recognize this reign as well by even excluding all those from the table who would profess Christ but have yet rejected his rightful reign in their life. Right? We exercise that reign through church discipline. So if you've come this morning and if you're not a member of a local church, recognize that according to the Bible, you've actually not fully submitted to Christ's reign. You're kind of like one foot in, kind of one foot out. But those who fully submit to Christ's reign will fully submit to that one institution he's left to declare him, to speak for him. And friends, that is the church. And it's why we need to be committed to a local church. To not be committed is both a disobedient and a deeply dangerous place to be. So member of UBC, I wonder if you take this kind of heavenly citizenship, Christ's reign in the local church, do you take that seriously? Do you invest in this body? Because recognize Jesus calls it his body, right? It's not just the body of UBC, it's Christ's body. Do you give yourself to it? Do you give yourself to the people? Or do you simply give yourself to family and maybe work and hobbies? Because recognize one of the ways in which Christ's reign is meant to bring life and light to us One of the ways God has designed it is through the ministry of one another in a local church. As we what? Build one another up in his word. As we encourage and admonish one another and encourage one another again as a family. As we lovingly care for one another. As we provoke one another to love and good works. As we pray regularly as we will tonight, Lord willing, pray regularly for one another. So just step back and take stock of your own life and ask yourself, How is Christ's reign in his church being reflected through you? How's it being reflected through you, through your daily life? But friends, while these verses are a full-length portrait of Christ, they are. They do also have implications for us as individuals. So we need to ask ourselves how Christ's good and godly authority is displayed in our individual lives, our personal lives. So think if you're a boss or a parent. Maybe you even hold some kind of public office. You know, you, want, you need to think about that authority. You, you might be young, right? You might be a student. You might think, like, I don't have any authority. But, hey, you might be a captain on one of your teams, You might be leading out in an orchestral group you're a part of with some other kids your own age. You may be the oldest sibling in your family. In all those ways, there is authority, even as one who is young, that you can exercise. And the question we need to be asking 
is does this authority bring life and light to others? Does our authority, in whatever ways we express it, does it bring life and light to others? Does this authority foster a kind of abundant flourishing? And is that reflected in your own life? Do those around you, just ask yourself, do they seem to thrive? Do they seem to grow? Your wife, right? your kids, those you supervise, maybe your teammates or classmates, do they thrive and grow or do they tend to cower and recoil? Do they prosper or do they just slowly wither up and die? I think we had a powerful display on Friday night with the Peterson concert of what godly authority can look like. Because what, what do we know? If you were there, you know that's Andrew Peterson's concert, right? That's his gig, that's his deal, right? His name's even in it. He, he's the one who wrote most all of it and who's put it together. He is the face of the concert. He's in charge. And yet, if you were here and you watched him, he doesn't wield that authority like a club. He doesn't act like some prince up here and everyone else is there to serve him. No, none of his musicians are being shamed or degraded, at least not clearly that we can see. Those who work with him, they're not cowering in fear of him. They're not just waiting for the next outburst. Now, certainly, Andrew Peterson isn't perfect. But did you notice how most on the platform here Friday night with him, how long had they worked with him? A few weeks because everyone else ran away? No, they worked with him for decades. Maybe the entire existence of the concert. They clearly love playing for him. And you get the sense they do anything for him. And notice that under that kind of leadership, that whole group flourishes. They thrive and they grow as musicians. And you see that in the way he, he steps back and calls them forward, the way he even encourages his own young daughter, Sky. And in that, it's just this beautiful picture, as I was looking at it on a Friday night, of what of warmth and vitality. This picture of growth and flourishing, of authority selflessly expressed in the care of others. That's exactly how Christ's authority should look in our own lives. Does it look like that in yours? In what ways is Christ's good authority being exemplified in your own life? And in what ways is it not? And in what ways do you need to repent? Do you need to own up to that and seek change in your life? Well, friends, that brings us to our second point. Godly authority, it also produces followers. Godly authority produces followers. Look down with me to chapter 23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joe, here we go. This is going to be a tough one. Joshabashabeth. I practiced that one. It's still hard to get out. A, a Tachemonite. He was chief of the three. We'll just call him Josh. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoyhai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle, and the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only, rather, the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shema, the son of Agi the Hararite. 
the Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adalam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison, a garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Well, then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went out to risk their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them, and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab, which probably just means great fighters of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when the snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man, which just means he's an imposing man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the 30, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. All right, we'll stop right there. Now, at first glance, this kind of reads like a bunch of cool stories that didn't make the cut for the final movie. Like, we're getting near the end of the book, and the narrator's like, all right, there are all these other great triumphs that didn't make it in, and we're just going to sort of lump them and throw them all together at the end. And it might read like that, but that's not the best way to look at it. What we have right here is a kind of honor roll of kingdom servants. And it begins with the three that are named in verses 8 to 12. And then it moves to the most renowned among the 30. And that's really verses 13 to 23. And it seems the order is in a kind of rank is followed. And these guys, these mighty men, they might sound like odd role models for contemporary Christians. We don't wage warfare like this. But notice, like us, what are they? They're servants of the king. That's what they are. They're servants of the king. And so what do they do? They model the king. They're followers of him, disciples even of him. That's the effect that David's godly authority had upon them. And what do I mean? Well, what was David known for? David was known for defeating God's enemies, And what are these men known for? They're known for how they defeated God's enemies. All of these men resemble in some form or fashion David, and they have flourished, and they have thrived under David's leadership. And so take the first guy. 
Here we go again. We'll just call him again Josh, right? Because we don't envy him for his name. What were his parents thinking? I don't know, this poor kid in grade school with a name like that. But get him out on recess, get him out on the playground, and this guy's mighty. He is fearsome. It's like the Bruce Lee of the Bible or something, like Rambo of Revelation. Take 800 men at one time. And now that could mean that he led a small campaign and together they took down 800 men and he is the leader, gets credit for it, or it could be that he did all of it. Either way, however you read it, it's an amazing feat. Or take Eleazar, verses 9 and 10. Right, The men of Israel withdrew, we read, and so what did he do? Well, he rose up and he struck down the Philistines with such ferocity such pertinacity that his own hand literally cramped around the sword. And we read the men finally return, but there's no one left standing except for Eleazar. And what do they do? They strip the slain. He's the only one left standing, Eleazar is, this sword hanging by his side victoriously. Right, that image there, it's just like that belongs in some Hollywood trailer. Right, we could sell this kind of stuff. Or take Shimon, verses 11 and 12. He makes, what, a valiant stand among some lentils. Now, I don't know if, like, you reading this, I'm like, seriously, lentils? Like, a valiant stand around lentils? Dark chocolate, maybe? Some almond trees, almond butter? Maybe some burn ends at rights. Like, that might be worth a valiant stand. But hey, you know what? Lentils, why? Well, it's God's land. It's his land. And so he takes his stand to protect God's land and God's own heritage. And what do we read? End of verse 12, the Lord worked a great victory. What did we read with Eleazar in verse 10? And the Lord brought about a great victory. What are we seeing? The battle belongs to whom? It belongs to the Lord. And is that not exactly what David said when he faced the mighty Goliath in 1 Samuel 17? The battle belongs to the Lord. Right? These men are simply following after David and their exploits. They're his disciples. And then we read of Abishai in verses 18 and 19. And you might remember back in 1 Samuel when David says, Hey, listen, is anyone willing? Saul's down there at a camp with 3,000 people. He doesn't know we're here. Who will go down with me into that camp to grab Saul's spear? And everyone's staring at David like he's crazy. And one guy's like, Yeah, I'll go with you. That's Abishai. That's this guy. And he's willing to go. And if you remember, they get into that camp and he wants to pin Saul like Saul sought to pin David. Right? And then there's Benaiah in verses 20 and 23. But I think most surprising to us are these other unnamed three men that we read of in verses 13 to 17. Because where is David? He's once again, this is at some point in his life, maybe it's 1 Samuel 22, maybe it's 2 Samuel 5, but at some point in his reign, he's once again, he's in a cave, and he's lamenting the fact that there's no water in caves, his mouth is parched, and he longs for that wonderful well at Bethlehem. Only it's well deep inside Philistine lines. But so committed are these unnamed three that what do they do? They covertly cover the 12 miles from wherever David is all the, they're in Adalam, all the way to Bethlehem. And they somehow break through the Philistine lines. They somehow get there to Bethlehem, right under the nose of this garrison. They draw up water out of the well, and then they somehow make their way back. They never get caught, and they bring it to David. They bring it to him. And we, it's hard to know, right? You read it, is that bravery? Is that stupidity? Right? It's a tough call, but such was their loyalty and such was their total commitment to David. 
You see, my Christian friend David engendered radical loyalty. He engendered radical loyalty. And that's exactly what our discipleship with Jesus should look like. Feats of radical devotion if we are his disciples. I wonder if your life looks like that. Or is your Christian life a little more comfortable? You attempt great things, but they're usually not first for Jesus. Ask yourself, what do you risk? What do you practically risk in serving Jesus? Reputation, are you willing to risk your reputation and put all of that on the line at work or at school? What about your financial comfort? What about an easy retirement? Are you willing to put that on the line by giving generously to gospel work and by supporting gospel work? Right? What about your life? Are you even willing, would you be willing to put your own life on the line by going behind enemy lines into some of the darkest places of the world in order to share this life-giving gospel? Discipleship entails radical devotion. And that's what's being pictured for us in these verses. And we have to ask, is that true of us? As individuals, is it true? As a congregation, is it true? We are called in this life to bear crosses, friends, not crowns. And we can imagine David's shock when these three guys show up, sweaty and likely bloody, and they've got that water from Bethlehem. But then the craziest thing happens, doesn't it? David doesn't drink the water. They've gone 25 miles. They've fought through enemy lines to bring this water, and David doesn't drink it. Instead, he just pours it out. 23.16, he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. Now, we read that, and you might think, man, that's insulting, What these guys did, that's insulting to them that he would just pour it out on the ground. But it wasn't insulting as David saw it, likely not insulting to them either. No, David recognized that the water represented the blood of his men and the sacrifice they went through to get it. They had risked their lives for him. And the only one worthy of such radical devotion, David understood, was the Lord. And so what does he do? He pours out that water as an offering to the Lord. Much like the unnamed woman, what does she do? She decants that that extravagant perfume on Jesus' body. He alone is the one worthy of such worship. And in doing that, in pouring that water out, David, in fact, confers the highest honor upon their service. And my Christian friend, I want you to see that so will Christ honor you for your service to him. So will he honor your service. Your service will not go unnoticed. However large or small that service is, the Lord sees it. He knows it. He takes stock of it. And so we can risk everything for him. And we need not fear knowing one day he will fully vindicate our faith in him. We will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And the reward will be so worth it. David's men believed it. They ordered their lives around it. They even risked their lives for it. Friend, do you, does your life reflect, again, that kind of radical devotion? Now, this brings us to verses 24 to 39. 
And in these last verses, we're given the list of the 30 men, really 37 if you include all these others just mentioned. We read in verse 24, Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the 30. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shema of Herod. Elikah of Herod. And you know what? I'm going to stop there. I'm not going to read all the names. So I tried this. I practiced it. And you know what? It was far more comical than it was ever going to be helpful. So you can read them uh, alone. You can follow along here in just a moment. But point being, what do we learn about this list of names? Well, Asahel, the first on the list, and Uriah, who's the last in verse 39, they're really the only figures we learn much about in Samuel. The rest of these guys are largely unknown. And I think that's actually part of the point. For it seems that the list was made up of whom? Not of the powerful, but of those who had been distressed and disenfranchised under Saul. So remember when David was on the run from Saul, all the way back in 1 Samuel 22, and he's there at the cave of Adullam, one of the many times he's probably there. And he's there, and what happens? But this ragtag group of social misfits and outcasts says, we're here And we're going to join you. We're going to align with you. We're going to commit ourselves and submit ourselves to you, the suffering servant. They were the ones the world had despised and rejected. But David welcomed them. And notice how these guys had now been transformed under him. Here they are at the end of the story, and now their names These social misfits, again, this ragtag group, they are etched forever in history as David's mighty men. You know, it reminds us again of Hannah's song, 1 Samuel 2, because she spoke about the great reversal of fortunes under God's anointed, where what the powerful are brought low and where the weak are raised high. Friends, God is in the business of reversing fortunes. Is that not what we heard in the testimonies earlier this morning? Jackson and Lily, he takes the low and despised. He takes those rejected by the world. And what does he do? He transforms them into trophies of his own grace. And this is what he promises to do for everyone who would bow the knee to him in radical devotion. I think that's that's what's revealed in the, the total list of names. If you go through them and if you know something of the place names, if you were to look on a map, you note that many of the names listed are from Judah. And that wouldn't surprise us because David's of the tribe of Judah. He's from Judah. But some, like Ittai there in verse 29, he wasn't from Judah. He was from Gibeah. And if that town rings a bell, that was Saul's hometown, Gibeah. And then you have guys like Abiezer in verse 27. He was from Saul's own tribe. Friends, what kind of king would welcome enemies and make them friends. That's what God's king does. That's what God's king does. And it's exactly, friends, what Jesus does with us. He turns enemies into friends. He transforms hell-bent rebels into heaven-bent worshipers. And that's what we find with these men. And some of the names even aren't, aren't even from Israel. Verse 37, Zelech. What is he? He's an Ammonite. Igal of Zobath. That's not Israel, verse 36. Verse 39, don't forget Uriah the Hittite. Because God's kingdom 
welcomes both Jews and Gentiles. And you have to wonder if the narrator put Uriah the Hittite in and put him last because he wanted there to be no mistake that though David had sought to snuff out that man's name and legacy, God would not. God saw his faithfulness and he would be listed there last among them. Friends, God's kingdom welcomes as we're seeing both Jew and Gentile. His plan has always been to have a people from among the nations, foreigners like us who have no right or claim to his love. He makes such foreigners, he makes them family. It's yet another way David here is pointing us to Jesus. Because it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done, it doesn't matter whatever sordid history you have, Jesus can transform it, and that's his specialty. He does it every day. That's what the reign of God's king does. It transforms individuals and, in fact, whole societies. And that gracious reign can include you. Your name can be written in the Lamb's book of life. Your name, like these guys, etched forever in history. It's one of the things we find in the New Testament. Often these lists of names, Romans 16, Colossians 4, as reminders that we are individuals that God takes particular note of and assures and promises a place with him etched forever in history insofar as we submit to God's rule and we follow his king, Jesus Christ, whatever the cost. Friends, authority in this life, sadly, it is abused, it is misused all the time, but not with this Jesus, not with his reign. His reign promotes flourishing and produces followers. The question is, are you living under that reign? Does that reign describe you? Does it look like your life? And does it look like our life together as a congregation? Let's pray.